Last week, we started a, a new series. The title of the series is No Hurry. Um, and it's going to be uh, an invitation to restructure our lives to better reflect the life of Jesus. And, and so, in doing that, to, to find his rest and, and relief from the hurry sickness that uh, infects our world. Uh, because we don't just hurry, we hurry hard. Right, Rob? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> All right, so we're, we're working alongside uh, uh, Pastor John Mark Comer's book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And we started last Sunday with the, the call to discipleship. Um, a reminder that, um, that being a Christian means following Jesus by learning what he taught, but also uh, by living the way that he lived. And one thing that we can say about uh, Jesus from a look at the Gospels is that while he was, he was consistently engaged, if you will, and in that sense busy, um, he was never hurried uh, in spite of the pressures that came of his popularity. And, and there's plenty of evidence that shows that today's pandemic of hurry, if you will, um, is far more toxic to our physical and spiritual lives than most of us probably have ever imagined. And it has been uh, centuries of building up to this, to this level of intensity, to this point. History witnesses to the accelerating manipulation of time by humanity. Um, it was already starting uh, in the time before Jesus uh, with the invention of the sundial, that oppressive sundial. Listen to the frustration of the Roman playwright Plautus. The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish the hours, confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small pieces. I can't even sit down to eat unless the sun gives leave. The town's so full of these confounded dials. The invention of the clock further shifted people out of the inexactness uh, and relaxedness, if you will, of solar and agrarian rhythms and into the precision and productivity of mechanical artificial time. In the latter half of the 19th century, with the, the electric, electrification of cities and the invention of a reliable light bulb, suddenly people found themselves playing and working around the clock. In his book, Dreamland, Adventures in the Strange Science of Sleep, David Randall writes, the world responded to these extra hours of possibility by acting like college students spending their first month in a dorm. Sleep took a backseat to nightlife, and it has never regained its former place. Factory owners also figured out they could double production by running a second 12-hour shift that ran overnight. And Randall goes on to document our, our resulting societal disconnection with the natural world of nighttime. We have so much artificial light, he wrote, that after a 1994 earthquake knocked out the power, some residents of Los Angeles called the police to report a strange giant silvery cloud in the sky above them. It was the Milky Way. I think perhaps that when, when God sees us hurrying around and hears us wishing, if, if only we could have more hours in the day, he must wonder, are you not exhausted enough? Because hurry, I think, has transitioned into being a, a mental state. In 1865, 
the white rabbit in Alice's Wonderland could run around fretting that he was late, driven by the recently mass-produced invention, the pocket watch, then hurry was, was still, I think, understood as a physical activity. It's something that you do. But times have changed. More and more, our hurried drive uh, is an internal condition. We don't just do hurry, we are hurried. The internet feeds us information at an accelerating rate, and our ancient brains are being driven to hurry, as, uh, as author Nicholas Carr writes, to take in information the way that the internet uh, distributes it in, in, swift, in a swiftly moving stream of particles, he says. He goes on to compare then to now, like before the internet and after. He says, Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. And it's led to illness. Internet addiction disorder or pathological internet use is defined as problematic compulsive use of the internet that results in significant impairment in an individual's function in various uh, life domains over a prolonged period of time. Mental health experts have also tracked a huge rise in the rates of anxiety and depression amongst those who most regularly access social media, especially those who were born after 1995, the generation for whom the internet and Facebook uh, and Instagram have always existed. This is uh, in part a result of the way that, that, the, that social media have evolved over the last you know, 15 years. Getting Facebook likes and that audible ping of notifications releases dopamine in our brains in a way not dissimilar to the use of illicit drugs. And this is laid out in the Netflix documentary, A Social Dilemma. If you have not seen it already, I encourage you to sit down long enough to watch it. But surely Exhibit A in our current hurry pandemic has got to be the smartphone. Since the invention of the iPhone in 2007, usage has exploded. There are now almost 10 billion mobile devices that are currently in use. That's more than one for every man, woman, and child on the planet. And also, uh, a specific uh, type of rise of addiction. It is called nomophobia. It is the fear of having no mobile phone. 66% of the world show signs. 68 of people aged 18 to 34 found it difficult. They find it difficult not to touch their smartphone for an hour. 20% of people would rather go without shoes for a week than go without their smartphone. More than 30% of people would give up seeing their friends in person. They'd rather do that than give up their smartphone. More than 30%. And in a San Francisco State University study, students who used their phones the most reported the highest levels of feeling isolated, lonely, depressed, and anxious. And you may wonder, well... Does that include me? Am, am I addicted to my smartphone? Well, you can take the smartphone compulsion test, which is available for the, through the Center for Internet Technology, the Internet and Technology Addiction. Now, I, can, I will tell you my result, because I took the test. And um, i got to say, I don't use my cell, smartphone that much. I don't think. Right? In fact, I was recently reprimanded uh, by a friend for not responding to my smartphone quickly enough. But even so, at the end of the test that I took, 
This is the result I was given was this. You might consider seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist, or psychotherapist who specializes in behavioral addictions for a consultation. Now, don't you judge me. (laughs) Don't you judge me until you take the test yourself. Um, I will be sending out the link to that test after the service. Plus a few other links to things I'll refer to. Here's the thing. The trouble with with living as sinners in a sinful world is that we are unable to properly assess the dangers that we face. And so uh, we're not able to perceive the things that make us unhealthy as things that make us unhealthy. And so we might think to ourselves, okay, fine, you know, I use my smartphone, you know, a fair bit. Maybe technically I'm addicted to it, but, you know, what's what's the big deal? I, you know, I go through my life and, and everything is fine. Well, the, the trouble is, in part, the hurried pace of our, ancient, of our anxious brains. That is a problem. It affects us as a society. We are, are ruder, less patient, and easily angered. In other words, we don't love each other as we should. Physically, the anxiety of our hurry makes us more sick more often, and it shortens our lifespan. And spiritually, as Dallas Willard has written, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Love, joy, and peace are incompatible with hurry. Now, all of this may cause us to look with some jealousy back in history to the ancient church. But we need to understand the dynamics of anxiety in the ancient world. Because we may have kind of a false picture of what their lives were like. This this sort of false picture of an easy life for the people uh, living then. We may picture sort of an idyllic lifestyle, right? Everybody was just, you know, sitting around, uh, you know, watching their flocks by night, chatting and eating hummus, like, like a David Roberts painting. You know, there was no pollution, there was no traffic, there weren't even any clocks, maybe those confounded sundials, but, but you know, we, we think of them maybe as having kind of a carefree existence. But not so, because it's clear that the people Jesus was ministering to were weary and burdened. Jesus' own observation is summarized in Matthew 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was a fulfillment of the um, vision of the prophet Ezekiel. God looked over his people, his flock, and he observed that the weak were not strengthened the sick were not healed, the injured not bound up, the strays not returned, and the lost not searched for. And so Jesus condemned, in his own day, the shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that, that rose uh, in prominence uh, in the centuries after the exile, right? And they figured if Israel had been defeated and captured by Assyrians and Babylonians because they had not obeyed God's law, Well, then we are going to study and we are going to apply God's law. And the reaction was a sort of hyper-legalism. They were engaged in intensive schooling and rigorous application uh, through language uh, study, uh, through discussion and argumentation. And what these Pharisees did was they produced an avalanche of new rules, laws, and traditions. And they showed a disdain for common people who did not uh, take the law seriously in the same way that they did. And so Israel's yoke 
became exceedingly heavy. This was a common way of referring to the Torah as a yoke, to the Torah as God's law, which was supposed to be for Israel, as we read earlier in the litany, according to one, Psalm 119, a source of delight. But, Jesus, but by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had transformed God's rule for life from a source of joy into a crushing weight. And so we're going to pick up with Jesus in Matthew 11. I'll read verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. So Jesus issues this invitation to find rest in his way. Instead of legal scholars, Jesus calls Israel to become more like children. According to the Pharisees, the the wisdom that was offered by the law could only be accessed through intensely difficult study and rigorous application. And Jesus said the very opposite. No, 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 he says, you need to become like a child. His was such a different approach. See, what what the Pharisees were doing was they were were kind of looking to the edges. And they were were looking to the edges of right behavior, and they were asking, okay, well, well, where does does sin start? What's the point at which now, now your behavior is sinful behavior? And so what they did um, in in defining the boundaries, um, because they didn't have a relationship, they didn't understand God as their father, they built this this sort of complex web of oral law tradition that acted kind of like a thicket or or, or a high fence around the wall. And Jesus sliced through all of that, cutting a, a clear path to the very heart of the law. Because Jesus knows the father and has a relationship with him. And so Jesus calls us in our hurry and anxiety to follow him and find rest. Come to me, he says, which, which must have been a very surprising call for the people first hearing him. Because he doesn't say, come to Yahweh, our God. He says, come to me. In that sense, he, he takes Yahweh's place. Because Yahweh is the one who said in the Exodus, my, will, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Christ's invitation here goes to a specific group. It is all who are weary and burdened. Reflecting on this passage, Martin Luther said, this means that Christ's kingdom is a hospital for those who are weak and disabled by injury or illness. What Jesus issues is the promise of rest. Not a lack of work or purpose, but freedom from anxiety. That ancient exodus promise. And how does Jesus say that we will find rest? Take my yoke. Take my yoke, he says. The commentator Dale Bruner says, uh, this seems surprising. What Jesus offers to those who are already weary and burdened is a piece of equipment. We think perhaps a vacation would be in order. 
But the purpose of a yoke, of course, is to make a burden easier to carry. People don't need a temporary break from a bad life so much as a better life. Bruner puts it this way, the most restful gift Jesus can give to the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. For the law was never intended to be burdensome. It was intended to be a delight. Jesus says, taking his yoke means learn from me. That included, of course, his teachings, right? His, his interpretation of the Torah, which is laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. But not just his teachings, it's also his practices. We need to look at how Jesus lived. Because a yoke isn't for thinking about. A yoke isn't for contemplating. It's for going somewhere. You don't, you don't sit down with a yoke. You walk. As Jesus says, I am gentle and humble of heart. Contrasted with the Pharisees who were notoriously strict and demanding. They were condemned by Jesus for not lifting a finger to help the people. And so Jesus offers the gift of rest for their souls. And again, this is not the rest of idleness. It's not rest, in a sense, for their hands, but it's rest in the journey of life. It's a fulfillment of the words of Jeremiah 6, verse 16. The prophet said, Seek the good way and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. When we live like Jesus lived, we are refreshed and renewed. Because the yoke of Christ is not like that of the Pharisees. Verse 30. Jesus says his yoke is easy, which is a little bit puzzling, like, puzzling because his, his yoke is, uh, his interpretation of Torah is not easier to do. Jesus often set a standard for behavior that was higher than that of the Pharisees. For instance, when they were teaching, you know, do not murder. Jesus said, well, anybody who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The yoke of Jesus is certainly, though, easier to understand. Because instead of defining the, the outer boundary between right behavior and sin in every conceivable area of life, Jesus is focused on the center. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the expressions of God's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus said his yoke was light, which uh, in, in that language means it's a yoke that would fit well. It was properly shaped to fit human sh- shoulders. It would not chafe. And as, as Sid Helema pointed out to us a few weeks ago, sharing the yoke of Jesus gives the benefit of pulling together. Because we can also think of the yoke of Jesus as a double yoke, like that of oxen, putting each of us on a team with Jesus. Right? We pull at his side, and so we share in his strength. The commentator Douglas Hare puts it this way, yoking two oxen together made them a team. In this word, Jesus may be saying, become my yoke mate and learn how to pull the load by working beside me and watching how I do it. The heavy labor will seem lighter when you allow me to help you with it. At the core of this invitation, Jesus also issues a call to action because the rest he promises comes by living the life of Jesus. I think it's it's unfortunate today that for many, many people, uh, Christianity is is understood as a belief system. It's 
uh, I think, an Enlightenment twist on the Reformation's intent. I think it's commonly understood that, that um, Christians have to believe the right doctrine, what we call orthodoxy with a small o, and then faith kind of takes care of the rest. You just got to believe the right stuff, and you're good to go. And that emphasis on right belief was a reaction to understanding righteousness as achieved uh, through our own good works and efforts. But the truth is, Christianity has two halves. There's orthodoxy, but also orthopraxis, which is right practices. A life of faith is not only hidden in our hearts and minds. If, if it is alive, it comes to expression through our hands and feet. It's visible. As we learned last week, that, that, that apprenticeship, discipleship model, one that we're called into, means that Christianity is not just learning about Jesus, it is living like Jesus. If you want to live the life of Jesus, and you want to have the peace and rest he offers, then you, you need to do what he did, the practices he practiced. Because Christianity is a way of living. Pastor Comer reminds us of Jesus teaching about him being the, the vine and we being the, the branches, called to bear good fruit through our connection with him. And the thing about good fruit-bearing vines, he says, is that they, they need a trellis, right? They, they need some structure to, to hold it up. The same is true of disciples. A fruitful dis- disciple needs a supporting structure. Just as a vine will die without a trellis, our life with Christ will wither away without a structure to facilitate our healthy growth. And this is just a matter of practice. That's typical of relationships, right? Parenthood, friendship, discipleship. It takes time and it takes practice. And so over the next four weeks of the series, we're going to be hearing Christ's invitation to rearrange our days to best fit his calling to follow him, to, to, to follow our rabbi, to spend some time with him, that we might become more like him. And I hope we will find ourselves at a happy crossroads. The opportunity to give up the hurried and exhausting pursuit of what we can never achieve to gain what our souls were made for and what we truly desire. And all God's people said, Amen. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we follow you as our King, as our Lord and our Savior. We are grateful for the salvation you've secured through a, for us through your death and resurrection. But we also need to recognize, help us, Holy Spirit, to see that you are also Lord and call us to action. How it must dismay you to see us so anxious and hurried and busy and having so little time or attention to give to you or to those that you love. Open our eyes, Lord God, to recognize our lives and the ways in which they've gone awry. Give us all that we need and your Spirit's power at work beside us be our yoke mate. Help us to respond to your invitation that we might come alongside you, be more like you, and so find the rest that you promise and so generously give.
In your name we pray. Amen.